comes down to this. The one thing. Yeah, here we are. Welcome to week 13. And some of you are like, man, it's been 13 weeks. I still don't know what the one thing is. Uh, if that's you, don't worry about it. We'll cover it at the very, very end. That just feels very um, appropriate that we do it that way. So real quick, anyone been here for all 13 weeks? That's incredible. That's incredible. Everyone online, of course, you didn't skip anything. So glad you're here with us. Um, here's how I want to start out this morning. Um, I wrote it down because I think it's that important. I want to make sure that I don't miscommunicate it. And if we've never met before, my name's Steve, and I have a habit of just um, speaking and then thinking. So sometimes I say things and I say it incorrectly. But this is really important to me. So I wrote it out, and I, I want to read it to us to make sure it's, it's clear and we're all on the same page, because this is the foundation for the rest of our time together this morning. So I, I, I wrote this down. And it says this, there's a big difference between hearing the gospel of Jesus and experiencing the gospel of Jesus. Yeah. Catch the difference between those two? We want everyone to experience the gospel of Jesus, not just hear about it. And I'll share personally from my experience, it seems like throughout history, Christians are, um, in, in, in churches, we're swinging the pendulum in different directions. And, and as we do that, I, at least in my experience, feel like we are overcorrecting. And I'll, let me explain. Um, growing up for me in the church and in the community I was at, there was a strong emphasis on proper belief. You had to believe the right things about the right things. And the assumption was, if you believe the right things about the right things, then right action will follow. And so we had great lengthy conversations, deep study on what the scriptures are, what they are not, how to apply these things to your life, sin, morality, proper doctrine. I mean, we went in on these things. And so um, it, it was good. But as I started hanging out with other Christians, I realized they were swinging the pendulum way over here. And my other brothers and sisters in Christ were like, hey, proper thinking is good, but Christians have disagreed on a couple things throughout history, and that's okay. What we really need to do is love our neighbor very, very well. And so they tried to, over, they tried to correct or swing the pendulum the other way and create a community that focused so much on loving people. And you're like, what's wrong with that? Well, again, it was an overcorrection. And it, uh, at least again, in our community gave birth to the social gospel, which is like, it doesn't matter what you believe. You just need to love Jesus and love other people. Cause, um, eventually, you know, all roads lead to heaven. And so just kind of do your thing, but make sure you're loving and not a jerk. And so then there was an overcorrection and we had to swing the pendulum back over here and go, well, okay, um, not all roads actually lead to heaven, right? Jesus, it, the scriptures are very specific on this, which again is why we need proper thought, proper execution of interpreting the scriptures. And so for me and what I've noticed is that we're constantly swinging the pendulum between the two things. And we tend to overcorrect a little bit and swing it just a bit too far and try and land somewhere in the middle, and that's difficult to do, and we're going to err on either side. And I, I think it's important to A, acknowledge it, and B, be very gracious with each other as we do this. My personal journey growing up, like I said, I, was, I grew up in a church that was very much like, this is what you believe, this is the right interpretation, that's the wrong one, and boom, 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 boom. The Greek, the Hebrew, all of that stuff. And then I started reading the Bible, specifically my New Testament, 
And then I was reading the gospels and went, man, Jesus talks a lot about our actions and how we treat other people. And then I read a book in the Bible that I love. It is my favorite book in the Bible. It's written by James, the half brother of Jesus. Just imagine that for a moment. Your, your brother, like that's the family you're growing up in, like Jesus and then you, like there's no, there's no way. And, and he penned these words and it's in the first chapter of James. It's James 1, 22. And, and if I have a life verse, this is my life first. It says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. What's that word? Do what it says. And, and, and what I gather from this verse is you must hear the correct truth. You have to hear the truth, but don't be deceived. You have to do or put into action the truth that you have heard. Are you with me? In other words, our faith, this uh, proper belief and proper action, that is two different sides of the same coin of my following Jesus. Now you can read it later on your own, but James chapter two, James will talk a lot about faith and deeds, faith and deeds, faith and deeds. And he'll say, and he drives home this point. He'll say, look, even the demons believe there is a God and they shudder. Would you agree that the action of demons and the actions of Christians are vastly different? That was a little weak. I was, I try, I'll try easier questions as we go along. There ought to be a difference. And so we want to be people that are putting into action the things that we are hearing, the truth that we are hearing, which means we need to love God really, really well. And we need to love our neighbor really, really well. And this whole series has really boiled it down to the one thing. And the fact, uh, the fact is this, we are all sinful people in need of a savior and his name is Jesus. And not just is he savior, he is also Lord of our lives. Now you would think if we all have proper thinking and we all believe this truth, then we would all act accordingly. And the truth is we don't. And this isn't new or it shouldn't be new. Um, I love it when people go, we need to go back and be the New Testament church. We need to get back to Acts chapter two, the New Testament church. And I always wanna go, we are, that's why we're so dysfunctional just like they were. And if you haven't picked it up, we've been marching 13 weeks through 1 Corinthians and it has been disaster after disaster after powder keg of disaster. If you thought the church was dysfunctional today, I'm telling you, go back to the beginning and watch the series all the way through. The Corinthian church was a disaster and yet, and yet, highly used by God. Incredible. And so we're gonna jump into our passage today. It's the last chapter, it's chapter 16. And I wanna give us the big idea and then set the context because um, last week, Pastor Kurt did a wonderful job and that really is like the climax, like everything is crescendoing to that chapter, to chapter 15. And you're like, yeah. And then you know your favorite movie, like they win the battle or they fall in love. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, he kisses the girl and you're like, yeah, they do the wedding. And then you have like the next three minutes and then boom, roll credits. Like it's just kind of like, and then boom, credits. This is what chapter 16 is. <laughs> you're like, death and resurrection, new life in Jesus. He's coming back. Woo! Chapter 16, you're like, hey, we got to do some household items. I need you to say hi to these people over here. Send a message over there and take this stuff over here. Like it's the cleanup stuff. So Kurt, thanks for that. Super excited to preach this one. No, I'm just kidding. Let me give you the big idea. This is going to frame everything, okay? Being unified in Jesus requires us to act like Jesus. Being unified in Jesus requires us to act like Jesus. It's not enough to be unified in belief. We must be unified in action. We need to live as if he is not just Savior, but also Lord of our lives. Meaning when he tells us what to do, 
we do it, right? The big church word for that is obedience. It's what we get frustrated at our little kids because they're not. Okay, so that's the big idea. Being unified in Jesus requires us to act like Jesus. Another way of saying it is this. Faith in Jesus means trusting him enough to do what he said. So you have to ask ourselves, you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, do I trust Jesus enough to do what he said? True confession, I trust Jesus enough for my salvation, but I'm hesitant on a few other things that he says to do. Now, intellectually, I, I agree. I believe that to be true. But my actions would say that I don't love my enemy like I love my wife. I don't want to pray for my enemies. That's not my first go-to because they're my enemies. Hello? But I believe in Jesus. I believe him to be Lord and King of my life. So, so that action needs to go. So I, I need some help with it. And God is incredibly gracious and our church community is incredibly gracious. But nonetheless, that is the standard. That is the command. That's the mandate is to love everyone the way that Jesus loves everyone. Faith in Jesus means trusting him enough to do what he said. Now, here's what's fascinating. Did you know that there are people that count words in the Bible? What a boring job. But hear me out. I, I want to go through this because belief is incredibly important, but action is really important. I need to drive this point home. Did you know the word belief is mentioned less than 500 times in the New Testament? No, because you didn't count, right? Because you have lives. You're doing things. Yeah, you get this. Okay, the word prayer, depending on your translation, prayer in your New Testament is mentioned 500 times. Would you agree that that's incredibly important? Yes? So we have belief that there is a God, creator of everything. Prayer, you can actually communicate with that God, the creator of everything. And then do you know how many times, do you know how many times the New Testament talks about your possessions and what to do with them? Specifically as it relates to one another. Any guesses? Over 2,000 times. Here's what I draw from this. What we believe is incredibly important. But I think Jesus in all of his infinite wisdom knew that we would have an easier time believing than we would acting. So he thought necessary that we have to repeat these things over and over and over and over, not because we're dumb, although that's a good argument, but because we need help with it. Are you with me? So this is not new. This is going on the whole time in the church of Corinth. Now, the early church started in Acts chapter 2. It started in Acts chapter 2, and they had everything in common, and then they sold everything because they were convinced Jesus was coming back. And you would too. If you thought he was coming back next weekend, you're like, who needs the house? Who needs the yard? Who needs the clothes? Let's sell everything. Let's go love people. Let's buy food for people. We're going to have a big party. Everyone needs to know Jesus is coming back. Y'all, come on. We're having a party. Woo! And then, you know, a century later, you're like, well, oh, man, we might have been off. <laughs> so don't have anything. They don't have buildings to meet in. They don't have homes to meet in because they sold them. They don't have food to feed hungry people because they're the hungry people. They have massive, massive problem on their hands. And this Jewish church that started everything, Jesus said, I want you to start this church. I want you to start this movement and spread the gospel to everyone. So it started in Jerusalem, arguably 100% Jewish people made up the church, maybe 99.5%, massively, overwhelmingly Jewish. And then it spreads to lands that are not full of Jews. They're full of Gentiles, you and I. If you're not a Jew and you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Gentile. That's it, you got two options, that's it, Gentiles. And the whole argument was, how Jewish do the Gentiles have to be? Because the Jews are God's chosen people, and if you a Gentile who are not a Jew, you wanna put your faith into this thing, how Jewish do you need to become? So they had phenomenal debates and terrible fights, yes, fights, over do they have to keep the Sabbath? 
Do they have to have a kosher meal? Can we have BLTs or not? What do we do? And then the third one, this is big. There's whole books on this in your New Testament. The idea of circumcision. And Gentile men are like, I love Jesus. Let's go follow them. And the Jews are like, great. You need to come outside the tent, back around the wall. We have to do a medical procedure real quick. And they're like, I need to go pray about this some more. Let me put it in our context. Um, If you were to move to Linden, you would ask yourself the question, how Dutch do I need to be to live in Linden? Do I need to be able to spell poffergies or do I just need to enjoy them? Like what's, don't give me that. You don't even know how to spell it. So, okay, so I'm taking time to do this. There's a persecution, there's hunger, there's so many issues that are going on. And for the sake of unity, this is the one thing, for the sake of unity, here's what Paul does. And we'll pick up our our, our sermon right here. Here's what Paul does. Paul says to the Galatian churches, we're going to take an offering and we're going to send it to our Jewish brothers and sisters. The people that have been fighting with us, that are making it more difficult to follow Jesus, we're going to bless them in the name of unity, in the name of Jesus Christ. We are going to sacrifice and collect money that we've worked really hard for. And in the name of unity, we're gonna march it all the way back to Jerusalem and bless these people because we wouldn't be here if they weren't faithful, as dysfunctional as the whole thing was. Do you see how beautiful that is? That's wonderful. You see how uniting that is? So I've taken a lot of time to set the context and the foundation, and then we're going to fly through this thing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now about the collection, right? That's the money for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made, right? Think like a special fundraiser. We've already been saving for all this time. We don't need to do a special fundraiser to raise the funds. We've already done it. Verse three, then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So oftentimes there would be this caravan and they would have official letters with official seals on them and they would all carry this money as a group of people and the letters would say, you know, signed by so-and-so, here's the total amount that's on the letter. It's also the total amount in the treasure chest. They wanna make sure there's a discrepancy there that everyone's being fair, everyone's being honest and no one is just stealing from everybody, right? So there's all these measures and Paul's going, we're gonna take a collection and we're gonna go give it to the Jews for the sake of unity in Jesus Christ. That's powerful. That's powerful. Just be thinking for a quick second, what sacrifices is in my making for the next neighbor, for the other church, for the other people in living in God's kingdom? How am I submitting and sacrificing to go and bless other people? A few thoughts on giving and generosity, if you caught it in there, number one in your notes, it should be systematic. It should be repeatable, right? It was the first day of the week. Pop quiz, what's the first day of the week? A little quicker than the nine o'clock, uh, nine o'clock crowd. They're like, uh, Monday, Sunday, mm, Sunday. What a great idea. Believers in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we gather the first day of the week to set the tone for the rest of the week in his name. What a beautiful thing. We gather together and we take our shared resources, we take our income and we share it with one another. We collect it. We live below our means so that we can go and bless other people. Why? Two reasons. Because it's loving and it spreads the gospel. We don't like to talk about it much, but we need money to spread the gospel. You ever try to plant a church with no money? You ever try to buy food for people who are starving to death with no money? 
You ever try to get a sound system in a church building with no money? It takes money to spread the gospel. We don't like that, but that's just the reality of it. Paul needed it. He says, we gotta get a gift. We have to help the church in Jerusalem. They're starving, they're being persecuted. They're not thriving. We have to help them, we have to do this thing. So it should be systematic. And number two, it should be unifying. And I love it when we give percentages because it's this idea of equal sacrifice, not equal giving because our income is different, but equal sacrifice, meaning we all have skin in the game. And giving isn't optional. Generosity is in fact a command. We must be generous people. This is one of those tension points. Can you feel it? Can you feel it in the room just a little bit? This is, you're like, Where, where's the ask? He's gonna ask for big money. Okay, where's it coming? Um, this is one of those things, I think if we're honest, the church in America, we believe that we should be generous and we trust Jesus that we should do that. But we struggle with the follow through with the action. Because we have a lot of reasons why not to. Because this came up, because this. No shame, I'm just saying, this is the tension. This is the reality that we live in. Paul's gonna write another book to the Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians. And in it, he says, when you give, you should give cheerfully and abundantly. What a great command. Don't be grouchy when you're being generous. Doesn't feel like a gift worth receiving. You're like, ooh, I don't, ooh, I don't wanna touch that. Here, be blessed. You're like, thank, thank you? Like, I don't, it feels very, very strange. Uh, I, I don't know that it's changed much. I don't have the most recent figures on all of this stuff, but are, if you're familiar with the 80-20 rule, I think it's called the Pareto principle. But the idea is this, in national studies of churches, about 20% of the people in the church pay for 80% of the gospel message, the gospel um, work that a church does, ministries, food, reaching out to the community. Um, and, and again, no shame on this, but what if we all pitched in? And it wasn't just 20 and I get it, mathematically different incomes, so percentages and stuff, that stuff changes. But I, did you know still on average, I believe this is still true, I might be off by one or 2%, but still the, um, the average percent of income that Christians give, if they give to their church, is roughly two to 3%. No, I don't, I don't share that to shame anybody. Thank you for your generosity. Um, it, it takes all of us to do this thing. Um, but just imagine if everyone gave two to 3%. What, what could we do? Now that's just two to three percent. Some people are given eight, 10, 12, 15 percent. What, what if? So the question is like, how, how generous could we be? And, and what could God do with it? How many more churches could be built? How many more schools and hospitals? Like, and then we could pr provide jobs for people to go and do those things and share the gospel with people. Like, and I always think this, like if you're not playing, you're missing out on an opportunity not to obey the rules. But giving and generosity is a vital part of our unity. We're all in this together, all of us, each and every one of us, each working to spread the gospel. Now, Paul does a very hard pivot. I told you, it's a laundry list, it's household, it's like housekeeping items. He's talking about generosity, collect all this stuff, and then he does a hard pivot and talks about his travel plans to go and share the gospel with other people. So it's a hard pivot, and he's gonna talk about an open door. You ever pray for an open door? Yeah. Closed door? Yeah. Christians, I love this. Christians love open and closed doors and, and seasons. Right, like, oh, I'm just in a difficult season or I'm in a season of blessing or I'm just praying that God opens this door and closes all the other ones, needs some clarity, you know. 
I, we just love these things. And the Apostle Paul, this is so important for us because we're gonna have a lot of open doors in the future. The Apostle Paul is gonna talk about how God has opened a door. And on face value, if we read this thing, we would go, that sounds a lot like a closed door. I would not choose to walk through that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, pick it up in verse five. Real quick, how many of you praying for an open door, closed door, just out of curiosity? Your prayers might be different by the end of this. <laughs> they almost always have to do, I do this as well, so I, come on, you're welcome. They almost always have to do with um, either like a destination or, or something personally of like, should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should we move? I've graduated high school. Should I go to college? Should I go to work? It's like, what, what should I do? We want direction. We're after a destination. And for the apostle Paul, he's gonna say, that's not bad, but his open door has everything to do with spreading the gospel. And you'll find out in a second, zero with personal gain. I'm not against praying for open doors and blessings and goodness from God. In fact, I, we should do that at the end of the service. I'm just saying, for Paul, it's a different approach. And his open door looks like a very closed door to you and I. First Corinthians 16, <clears throat> verse five, we'll pick it up. It says this, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you for I will be going through Macedonia. Notice the hesitancy in his, in his words in the next few verses. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that, when, or so that you can help me on my journey. What's that word? Wherever. Wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now in only, in only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Do you see the hesitancy? Lack of clarity. I would like to do this if I hope that things will happen, but you know, I'm not sure if God's gonna do. Maybe we could possibly, my desire is to, but I'm not sure this thing, maybe, I don't know. That's what he's saying right now. And then you keep going. Verse eight, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. I'd like to do all these things. I'm gonna hunker down here in Ephesus because a great door, a great opportunity has happened to spread the gospel. And then listen to what he does to follow it up. It's been open to me. And don't you love the ands in your life? Dot, dot, dot. There are many who oppose me. Come on, this is not the open door that you and I pray about. You imagine, you're like family, family meeting, circle it up. Come on, we gotta talk through. Want to let you know, we've been praying. We feel like God has opened the door, but there's like so many people that oppose us. It's, it's gonna be great. <laughs> what? No, not at all. He says, look, we're gonna do all these things. A door's been opened for effective work. It's been opened. And there are many who oppose me. Buckle up. We're going on a ride. Couple notes as we keep marching through. What you can expect with an open door. Number one is opposition. If God has opened a door, it may be a door of blessing, of confetti cannons and silly string and happy smiley faces and wouldn't that be great? Also, you could experience opposition. For Paul specifically, opposition of weather, timing and location. Seas are closed in winter, it gets nasty. You know, their sailing was pretty good, but would you agree they're lacking some of the technology that we have today? Weather gets crazy. You can expect opposition, and it might not be from people. It may just be from nature. 
An open door doesn't always guarantee smooth sailing. Number two, powerful opponents. There are people there that were against Paul and his teaching about Jesus. People didn't want him there. People didn't believe that Jesus is God. They didn't want to hear his message. Some of them where he was going, no doubt there would be Jews there, but they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. There was going to be opposition from people and weather and timing. By the way, you ever been praying for an open door and you just feel like, man, this is taking forever? Doesn't mean it's not an open door. Timing is crucial. It's really important. Now we'll read this passage and we'll get the third thing of what you can expect as you go through a door. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear. He has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Number three, you can expect this as you go through an open door, power struggles. Here's what was happening. Timothy is a younger guy. He's, he's Paul's protege, basically. Um, Paul is mentoring him and, and raising him up. Here's the power struggle that happened in the churches specifically. Timothy's a younger guy and the older people who are in charge are looking down on Timothy and they're seeing his youth and lack of experience, not his anointing. Those are two very different things. And I always like to ask young leaders, what's the right age for you to lead? Because they don't really know. And I like to ask older leaders, like, what's the right age? What's the perfect age to lead? Because older people, when they look at younger people, they go, well, you just, you know, you need more experience, you need more time, you need to be tested. And then the younger people looking at older leaders are going, you've got all this experience, but it's all outdated because the world has changed and we're now here. And I just go to everybody and go, maybe we should just look at the anointing and raise up leaders regardless of their age, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of how they vote. Is God's hand of blessing on their lives? Well, let's go raise them up because we need more churches. We need more Christians spreading the gospel just like Paul is doing, amen? Amen. But he's facing oppositions from who? From people in church. My belief in God and my action in how I treat other people. This, This can be difficult, can't it? We can't just settle on the fact that it's difficult and challenging. We must persevere. We must keep going. Now, on to the fourth thing. We'll keep reading verse 12. Now about our brother Apollos. Remember him from the beginning as we talked about him? I strongly urged him to go with you, to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now. Think stubborn. He was quite unwilling to go. He was stubborn. But he will go when he has the opportunity. Last one, what you can expect as you walk through an open door, discouragement. I'm glad you came to church. Just being honest. You know why he faced discouragement? Because he's working with people. Like me. And like you. You ever been stubborn? You ever married? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I know better. If God has placed something on your heart, you need to understand that you will face opposition because because Satan will paint a closed door and make it look wide open and beautiful and rosy. And Jesus is going, hey, that may look good, but it leads to destruction. I need you here. And you're gonna go down a very dark path, but I need you to go down a dark path because you carry the light of Jesus with you. You have to go down that path. And it's difficult and there will be opposition and there will be people that discourage you and frustrate you and there are power struggles. There's all sorts of disaster out there. 
but you have to be faithful to what the Holy Spirit is placing in your heart and where he is in fact leading you to go. Just because it looks rocky and it looks closed doesn't mean it's closed. You could be right where the good Lord needs you to be. Here's how he wraps it up. Verse 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Why would he do that? Because it's so difficult As you're going through open doors, you need to be strong. You need to be courageous. Don't give up. You have to persevere. Keep going. And he says, just in case you forget or you get discouraged and distracted, verse 14, do everything, everything, everything in love. Do everything in love. Our faith in Jesus requires us to act like Jesus. So here's the question. Do I trust trust Jesus enough to obey him even when it doesn't make sense? Do I trust Jesus enough to obey, even when it doesn't make sense? I, I don't know about you, but I want to answer that question with a yes. Can I be honest? Giving, if you run the math on it, it doesn't make sense. But when I am generous with my finances, I realize that I'm rich in so many other areas. And I can see that the good Lord is providing and blessing my life, not my paycheck. How how inconsistent of us to go and trust Jesus again with our salvation, with eternity, and not trust him enough to handle our finances with what he says to do. Do do you see, logically, that, that that makes zero sense. And, and, and I want for my life, for my boys, for my wife, our family, I, I want us, and it doesn't always do work this way, but I want us more often than not that the things that we believe and we profess about Jesus, I, I want it to be backed up with, with our actions. My faith in Jesus requires me to act like Jesus. And I'm just, we're gonna close and pick on two things right here real quick. The, the first one is generosity. I, I, I wanna be generous. And the question, I, I think a better question instead of like how much am I giving is how generous can I be? It's a slight difference, but one is trusting in the abundance of God. And the other one is trusting in my math and my budget. And, and maybe, maybe part of my sanctification, part of me becoming more and more like Christ is learning to live on less. Because when I have abundance and tremendous blessing in my life, I, I tend to... Um, Start feeling some kind of way about myself. Still got it. And I just wonder if, if Jesus goes, hey, why don't you just trust me in this area? Why don't you go bless someone else over there and, and just, what if we just live this way? Now again, I'm, I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm not trying to shame anybody. Um, look at our church. Every week, well, almost essentially every week, we do a ministry report. It's a highlight of what is happening here in our church, in our county, and then overseas throughout the world. Work that we are doing around the globe, quite literally. And so um, if you show up on a Sunday and you watch those videos, you need to know, you need to make the connection. Your dollars and cents that you're giving is, is helping all of that. And, and we're doing that together. This is a unifying thing where we're trying to spread the gospel and we're gonna try as many techniques as we possibly can afford. But I just, can we just be brutally honest and have an honest conversation before the fall hits? We have two open doors. The first one is this, generosity. We have an opportunity to go and give above and beyond just two to 3% like the average church giver in America. 
And I just wonder if we phrase the question, how generous does God want me to be? How generous could I be with God's help? Just, just imagine the possibilities. Just imagine if each and every one of us gave two to 3%. How many hospitals could we build? How many schools could we build? How many people could we help? People that are going through cancer and have extreme medical bills? There, done. Next, we need you healthy and well. Let's pay for the medical bills. We got people to lead to Jesus. What's next on the list? There are so many things that we could accomplish if each and every one of us gave two to 3%. Now hear me out. This is not about paying the light bill and this is not about Pastor Kurt needs a jet. Okay? If you wanna be dishonest and get rich, trust me, you don't go into ministry. <laughs> There's better avenues, quicker avenues to accomplish that. This is about taking the resources that are God's to begin with, that he's entrusted us to steward, and sharing the gospel with other people who do not know Jesus. Listen, listen, they may have heard the gospel message, but they have not experienced the gospel message. And I just wonder, what if we gave two to 3%? What if, what if we gave five? What, eight, 10, 12, 15, 20%? I, I, I don't know. That's, that's, between, that's between you and God. I'm just simply saying, as a unifying act, like Paul did with all these other churches, he said, we're all gonna collect some money because we're gonna all bless these people. What if we all got together and said, well, it's not much, but here we go. And every one of us gave. Imagine the things that we could do. We would have so, we'd be present in so many countries, not just here in Linden, not just here in Whatcom County, in so many countries throughout the world. Why? Because we have an abundant God and who's given us all the resources we need to go and spread the gospel. I believe the answer is in the room. I'm not even counting the people that are online and you already know you're giving, so thank you. I'm just saying, the people in the room, in this service and the service before us, if we all gave the same percentage, what in the world would God do with it? I think we would stand back and we would be amazed. And we might even learn something about ourselves in the process. The second door that we can walk through, the door of small groups. Now, Sarah and I, we beat this drum probably louder than anybody. And the truth is that you cannot live this Christian life by yourself. You can't do it. There's over 30 passages in the New Testament that talk about the one another's, loving one another, caring for one another, carrying one another's burdens, encouraging one another, one another, one another, one another. Jesus said it best, love God and love others. It's all about the people. And what I know in our society, and I'm for sure it's crept into our church, is simply this. We, are, we, are, um, we have built up walls and we have distanced ourselves and we have become defensive as it relates to other people. We have our personal life. Can I be honest? And maybe someone else be honest? My personal life is a disaster. Do you know why? Because I kept it personal. <laughs> I haven't shared it with other people for them to help it. I need other people's help. You need other people's help. Those of you who are married, I notice you're looking straight at me and not at one another. Your spouse needs the help of other people and you know it. I'm simply saying this, we have a door and you're gonna walk through this door and you're gonna feel opposition because Satan doesn't want you meeting with other Christians and praying together and sharing your resources and loving one another. So he's gonna paint that as a ugly, filthy, nasty door. Opposition, there will be power struggles in that group. You're like, I want ice cream and brownies for snacks. And they're like, no, we do vegetable platters. And you're like, oh, I hate this group. Power struggles are real. <laughs> you think I'm joking about that complaint? <laughs> I'm simply saying this, and I don't know what better way to stress the point. 
When we walk through those doors as uncertain and difficult as they can be, it is right where God wants us to go. It's right where he wants us to be. And if we go through those doors, our faith and the gospel message is not just something we intellectually believe in, but it is something that we experience. And it gets better. It's not just a personal experience. It becomes a communal experience. We have two options as it relates to this text this morning. Two open doors. And my prayer is as we leave this place, we would walk through both of them of generosity, how generous can I be, and walking through the doors of small groups, admitting that we need one another. Because heaven and hell depend on it. So I want to wrap up this whole series by doing the, the thing that I think unifies us completely. It unifies us the most than anything else. We're going to close with communion. So I'm going to invite the band to come on up. They're going to lead us in a song. And when you're ready, I'm going to have us all walk up and grab the elements. I simply, I simply want to say this, and then I'm going to pray. When we come up and we receive the elements, we are acknowledging that, that we are, in fact, sinful people. This is the one thing. We are sinful people in need of a Savior. And when I acknowledge that, and when you acknowledge that, we are united. We are united. We are the same because I realize Jesus loves you just as much as he loves me. And that means we can be together. We can be for one another. We can encourage one another. We can change each other's lives if we only give permission. And if we only see each other the way that God sees us. So I want to pray for us that we would be unified in this. Father, would your Holy Spirit help us in this moment First and foremost, to admit that we are sinners in need of your saving grace and that it is found only in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray in the next few moments that your Holy Spirit would illuminate things, blind spots in our lives, things that we have buried so deep we have almost forgotten about them. Would we confess those to you and would we experience your unconditional love and your amazing grace? pray this in Christ's name. Amen.